Volume 1, Chapter 8, Part 3 of A Popular History of England from the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. A Popular History of England from the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria by François-Pierre Guillaume Guizot. Chapter 8, Part 3. Magna Carta. John was well known by the people whom he aspired to govern, and was universally detested. Scarcely had the rumour of the death of King Richard spread through France, when all the nobility of Brittany, Turin, Anjou, and Maine declared themselves in favour of Prince Arthur, son of Geoffrey Plantagenet, and of Constance of Brittany, born seven months after his father's death, whom Richard had repeatedly nominated as his successor. Under the influence of Eleanor, Aquitaine and Poitou recognised John as their liege lord. He was in Normandy, and caused himself to be proclaimed at Rouen on the 25th of April. He had already sent the Archbishop of Canterbury back to England, to bring together all the barons, and to make them swear allegiance to John, Duke of Normandy, son of King Henry, son of the Empress Matilda. The repugnance felt towards him was very general, but the fear of anarchy decided several noblemen in favour of John. Promises and presents influenced others, and on the 25th of May, 1199, when John arrived in England, the greater number of the barons had become reconciled to his cause. The new king was crowned on the 27th of May at Westminster, the primate proclaiming aloud that the crown of England was not an inheritance descending by right of primogeniture, but that it belonged to the worthiest claimant. The worthiest claimant on this occasion was Prince John. There had been no question raised about the rights of Arthur, but Philip Augustus was too shrewd not to seize this pretext for renewing the war against John, whom he knew to be a coward, a sluggard, and a sovereign unpopular in his kingdom. He claimed, therefore, in the name of the young prince, whose mother had placed him under the royal protection, nearly all King John's continental domains. Hostilities recommenced, and Brittany was ravaged both by its enemies and friends. But the King of France was engaged in a serious dispute with the Pope. His kingdom had just been placed under an interdict. He concluded peace with John, sacrificing without remorse the interests of Arthur, who found himself completely disinherited through the mutual understanding between his uncle and the King of France. Meanwhile, John had started out for Aquitaine, there to receive the homage of his subjects. He met at one of the fates which were celebrated, Isabel, daughter of the Count of Angoulême, and wife of the Count of Marche. She was remarkably beautiful, and as ambitious as she was beautiful. Her beauty attracted the king, and the ambition of the countess prompting her, she abandoned her husband to marry John Lackland, who himself had been married for ten years to the daughter of the Earl of Gloucester. An insurrection soon broke out in Aquitaine. It was insignificant at first, but at the beginning of the year 1202, Philip Augustus, 
delivered from his quarrels with Pope Innocent III, stirred the flame of the rebellion in the southern provinces, organised an insurrection in Brittany, and suddenly took up Arthur's cause again, who had recently lost his mother. "'You are aware of your rights,' he said to the young prince. "'Do you wish to become king?' "'Decidedly I do,' said Arthur. "'Very well, then,' said Philip. "'There are two hundred knights. "'Take them and march against your own provinces "'while I enter into Normandy.' "'The Bretons rallied round their young duke, "'who advanced with his little army "'against the town of Mirabeau in Poitou, "'where his grandmother Eleanor was staying, "'whom his mother had taught him to hate. "'He hoped, by capturing her, "'to obtain better conditions from his uncle. "'But the old queen defended herself valiantly.' and held the castle sufficiently long to allow her son to come to her assistance. A nobleman of the country delivered up the town to him on the night of the 31st of July, 1202, on King John's promising not to do any harm to his nephew. All the noblemen who supported the young duke, amongst whom was the Count of Marsh, were made prisoners, and Prince Arthur himself was imprisoned in the castle of Falaise, whence he was transported a short time afterwards to Rouen. There all trace of him is lost in history, and no information concerning him exists, except vague and contradictory tradition. The most probable story relates that the king arrived by night with his esquire, Peter of Molac, to see the unfortunate young prince in his dungeon, and that he took the latter with him in a little boat upon the Seine. The young man was in fear, and begged his uncle to spare his life. But John made a sign, and de Moulac, after plunging his dagger into the prisoner's heart, threw his body overboard. But it is also said that de Moulac conceived a horror of the crime beforehand, and refused to commit it, and that the king himself struck the fatal blow. It was on the 3rd of April, 1203, Rumours of the murder spread throughout France and England, adding fresh indignation to the hatred which John already inspired. The Bretons proclaimed Alice of Thouars, daughter of the Duchess Constance, by her third husband, instead of Prince Arthur's sister Eleanor, the Pearl of Brittany, who was in the power of her uncle, and was shut up by him in a convent at Bristol. The appeal of the Bretons to the liege lord was listened to by Philip Augustus, he summoned John, Duke of Normandy, to appear in Paris to be judged by his peers. Queen Eleanor had retired to Fontrevaux, where she had taken the veil, overcome, it is said, with despair in consequence of her son's crime. John had not answered Philip's summons. He was at Rouen, occupied with the festivities, while the King of France had entered Poitou, supported by the nobility who had generally revolted in his favour, and was marching from there into Normandy. The Bretons had commenced the attack, and were advancing, pillaging the country. Many Normans joined them, so great was the horror inspired by the murder of Prince Arthur. The people had also organised an insurrection in Anjou and Maine, and Philip had taken possession of all the towns on his way, when he effected a junction with the Bretons at Caen. Let them go where they please, John would say in the midst of his revels, 
I will take back in one day all that they have acquired with so much trouble. But the French army, having appeared at Rodepont in the neighbourhood of Rouen, the King of England fled in great haste and recrossed the channel in the month of December 1203 in order to seek for succour. The English reinforcements did not arrive. Rouen had defended itself valiantly, but the citizens had at length yielded in consequence of a famine. Van Nuy had just been taken. Castle Gaillard, fortified by Richard Coeur de Lyon, capitulated after a siege of seven months. The garrison had defended tower after tower. There no longer remained a single French knight when the French soldiers at length destroyed the last portion of the ramparts. John had not lifted a finger to defend his dominions, and the King of France was regaining possession of his Duchy of Normandy, which had been separated from his dominions for 292 years. Brittany, Touraine, Anjou, Maine and Poitou slipped from the grasp of the King of England. Aquitaine alone remained to him. King Philip, who was now satisfied, allowed himself to be persuaded by a legate sent by the Pope and concluded a truce of two years' duration with King John, which was to commence in the month of December 1206. The arms of his temporal enemies had triumphed. John Lackland was about to bring down upon himself the spiritual thunders. A conflict had arisen between the King and the Chapter of Canterbury about the election of an archbishop. The Pope settled the question by nominating Cardinal Stephen Langton, who was then at Rome, and whose merit was known to the pontiff. The monks of Canterbury recognised him, and John caused them to be driven from their cloisters by two knights, sword in hand. The Pope instructed the three bishops to pronounce an interdict in England, authorising at the same time the English barons, who were, he knew, secretly discontented, to aid him in snatching their country from ruin. The bishops pronounced the terrible sentence and at once left King John's dominions. The barons did not dare to rebel. The king had taken possession of a large number of children of the noblest families as hostages. He had sent Peter of Marlach to demand the sons of William of Browse, Lord of Bramber in Sussex. By my faith, said the lady of the castle, he did not take such care of his nephew that I should trust my children to him. Peter of Marlach made prisoners of the lady and her children, who died of hunger in their prison. Lord Bramber died of grief in consequence. The interdict had lasted one year. The churches were closed. No more bell ringing, no religious services, no marriages, no prayers over the graves. The baptism of newly born children and the administration of extreme unction were the only concessions made by the church. In 1209, the Pope sent a bull of excommunication against the king. The blow was foreseen and the approaches were so zealously guarded that the papal missive could not gain admission. But John knew that a sentence of deposition would follow that of excommunication, and this proceeding, although unproductive of practical results in itself, assumed a terrible degree of importance when it was known that King Philip Augustus was ready to carry it into execution. 
It is related that at this time John, in despair at his struggle against the church, conceived the idea of begging the assistance of the Muslims, and that he sent an embassy to the Emir el-Haziz in Spain, proposing to embrace the religion of Islamism and to become the vassal of the Emir, if the latter would cross the Pyrenees, enter into France, and thus draw off the forces of King Philip. The Emir listened gravely, only giving vague answers. When the emissaries had retired, the Muslim called back one of them, a priest. Tell me, he asked him, in the name of the Lord, from whom you expect your salvation, what kind of man your king really is? He is a tyrant who will soon feel the effects of his subject's anger, replied the monk, and the emir refused all King John's offers. In spite of the Pope's discontent and John's terror thereat, the latter had carried on successfully some expeditions against the insurgents in Ireland and Wales, when, in 1213, Innocent Third at length proclaimed his deposition, absolving all his vassals from their oath of allegiance and making an appeal to all Christian princes to dethrone an impious tyrant. Stephen Langton was sent to King Philip to promise forgiveness for all the latter's sins if he would carry out the sentence of the Holy See. The French army was already being formed. King John had obtained a signal success over his adversary's fleet, and he was at Dover, surrounded by an army of 60,000 men, ready to encounter the invaders if their sovereign would lead them. But John was afraid of his subjects, mistrusting their fidelity, and he shrank as usual from giving battle to the enemy. The Pope's legate, Pandolf, came and met him at Dover. He represented to the king in the most terrible colours the strength of the French army, the discontent of the barons, and the anger of the exiles. The little courage that remained to the degenerate Plantagenet faded away from his heart. He was, besides, pursued by the recollection of a prediction of Peter the Hermit of Wakefield, which ran, Before the day of the ascension, the king will have lost his crown. John resolved rather to drag it through the mire than to relax his hold of it. The legate was a skilful diplomatist. Before making public the results of his negotiations with the king, he demanded that all the exiled priests should be allowed to return with Langton at their head, and he also exacted an assurance that the clergy and laity would be indemnified for the losses which they had sustained through the interdict. The king signed this agreement on the 13th of May, 1213, and four barons affixed their seals to it. On the 14th, John was engaged all day in private conference with the legate. On the morning of the 15th of May, the king rose early and went to the Church of the Templars at Dover. A great crowd had already assembled there, and John, kneeling and clasping the hand of the legate in his own, swore in a loud, clear voice an oath of allegiance to the Holy See. At the same time, he placed in the hands of the pontiff's ambassador a document declaring that he, John, King of England and Ireland, 
in expiation of his sins against God and the Holy Church, without being constrained thereto by force or by the fear of the interdict, but of his own free will and with the consent of his barons, ceded to the Holy Pope Innocent and to his heirs and successors forever, the Kingdom of England and Dependency of Ireland, to be held by himself John and by his successors as a fief of the Holy Church by paying an annual sum of a thousand marks of silver. At the same time the king offered a purse as an earnest of his submission. Pandulf threw it on the ground, trampling the money disdainfully underfoot, but he accepted the crown which John had relinquished, and for five days it remained in his keeping. The feast of the ascension had passed. The king caused the hermit of Wakefield to be tied to the tail of an untamed horse as a punishment for his predictions. But the people maintained that Peter had not been mistaken, because King John himself gave up his crown. Scarcely had the legate accomplished his mission in England when he recrossed the sea to Philip's camp at Boulogne, announcing to the latter that the states of his enemy would for the future form part of the dominions of St. Peter, and that the King of France no longer had permission to invade them. But, said Philip, I have spent enormous sums of money in the preparations for war at the Pope's bidding, and on his having granted remission of my sins. He resolved to carry on the expedition, and was preparing to set sail, when a quarrel with the Count of Flanders caused him to turn his arms in that direction. The English fleet came to the assistance of the Count, and gained a brilliant victory over the vessels of Philip, who, finding himself deprived of the means of transport and re-victualling, was obliged to renounce, for the time being, his expedition against England. John had called all his subjects to arms, but when the barons met him at Portsmouth, they refused to embark in the ships until the king had allowed the exiles whom he had called back to re-enter the country. Langton was hateful in the eyes of John, who looked upon him as the cause of the first dispute with Rome. But he was obliged to yield, and the Archbishop and the monks of Canterbury once more set foot on English soil. The kiss of peace was exchanged, and John embarked, reckoning on the support of the barons. He arrived at Jersey, but the noblemen had not followed him, pleading that the period of their service was at an end and they met at St. Albans, under the presidency of Chief Justiciar Fitzpiers, a man of low origin, whose marriage with the Countess of Essex had placed him in a position which he maintained by reason of his ability. They had already published a series of royal declarations demanding the observance of the old laws, when John, furious at the desertion of his vassals, returned, pillaging and burning down everything on his way. The Archbishop of Canterbury came to him. "'You are not fulfilling your oath, sire,' said he. "'Your vassals should be judged by their peers, and not coerced by arms.' "'Pay attention to your church,' cried the king angrily, "'and leave me to govern the kingdom.' Langton threatened to excommunicate all the agents of the royal vengeance, and John ended by summoning the barons to appear before him. Langton, on the other hand, had convoked them at London. 
When the king entered the audience chamber, the cardinal held in his hand a parchment document. It was the charter of King Henry I. This was neither the first nor the last charter which England received since the conquest. William the Conqueror, in 1071, had guaranteed to his barons, by a charter, the performance of a contract entered into between them, promising to reform the abuses which had been pointed out to him, and securing to the Saxons the maintenance of the laws of Edward the Confessor. In 1101, King Henry I had lately been proclaimed King of England. The Duke Robert was claiming the throne by virtue of his seniority. In order to secure the support of the Norman, as well as the Saxon barons, Henry had convoked in London a general assembly and signed a fresh charter, almost similar to his brother's. It was this document which Archbishop Langton had found, and which he was bringing to the barons assembled in London, like their ancestors, not as of old to receive a charter, but to force one upon the king. King Stephen had also made the same promises, endowing the church likewise with a charter setting forth its rights. Finally, Henry II, in 1154, had renewed the charters of King Stephen and had caused a copy of the document to be deposited in all the churches. There is one of them remaining now. Coeur de Leon did not sign any charter, but that of John Lackland was destined to be glorious and powerful for ever afterwards, under the title of Magna Carta. The barons swore to observe the injunctions of Henry I's charter, which had been presented to them by Langton, to remain faithful to one another and to secure their liberties or to die defending them. This was on the 25th of August, 1213. The Pope had abandoned the cause of English liberty on receiving homage from King John. The interdict had been raised and the hostile forces of King Philip were gathering in all directions. The Emperor of Germany, the Count of Flanders and the Count of Boulogne called the King of England to their aid. John sent William Longsword, Earl of Salisbury, his half-brother, to the camp of the Allies and marched in person against Brittany, but he did not come to blows with the heir to the throne of France, Prince Louis, who had been sent forward by his father on the 27th of July, while the latter was waging war against the Confederates at Bouvain. On the 19th of October, John signed a five years' truce and returned to England, furious, humiliated, and resolved to revenge himself upon his English subjects for all the reverses of fortune which he had suffered on the continent. Fitzpiers, whom John feared and detested, was dead. The king burst into laughter on learning this news. God's teeth, he cried. This is the first time that I have felt myself king and sovereign of England. But Langton was the real chief of the conspiracy. The support which the Pope lent to King John had not for a single moment shaken the fidelity of the Archbishop to the cause of the barons. They again met on the 20th of November at Bury St Edmunds, and, placing their hands upon the altar, they swore one after another that if the king refused to grant the just rights which they claimed, they would withhold their allegiance 
and wage war against him until he should have granted their demands by a charter sealed with the royal seal. Christmas Day arrived. The king found himself alone at Worcester, his barons not having presented themselves to do homage to him. John retired in great haste to London and took refuge in the fortress of the Templars. The barons followed him there, this time in larger numbers than he cared for, and on the day of the Epiphany they haughtily presented their requests to him. John eyed the faces which surrounded him, and which bore an inflexible and resolute expression, both in the case of the priests and the warriors. He turned pale. "'Give me until Easter to reflect upon all this,' he said. Before consenting, the barons stipulated that Cardinal Langton, the Bishop of Ely, and the Earl of Pembroke should become sureties that the king would satisfy their claims upon the day mentioned by him. They knew the value of John Lackland's promises. Scarcely had they left when he threw himself under the protection of the church, renouncing all the prerogatives of the throne in the choice of ecclesiastical dignitaries, and begging the assistance of the Pope, who wrote to Langton, but with no result. At length, John formally assumed the cross, on the 2nd of February, hoping thus to avoid fulfilling his promises to the English barons. He did not yet fully understand his subjects. On Easter Day, the Confederates had met together in large numbers at Stamford. They sent a deputation to the King, who was at Oxford. When Langton read aloud the claims of the barons, John angrily exclaimed, And why do they not also ask for my crown? By God's teeth! I will not grant liberties which would make a slave of me. The Pope's legate, who was there, maintained that Langton ought to excommunicate the Confederates. The intentions of the Holy Father have been misunderstood, said the Archbishop calmly. If the mercenary followers of the king do not soon leave the kingdom, whose ruin they are accomplishing, it is they whom I will excommunicate. The barons then style themselves the army of God and of the Holy Church, and, placing Robert Fitzwalter at their head, they marched against Northampton Castle. The resistance there was so actively carried on that the siege had to be raised, and the barons advanced towards Bedford. The position of affairs at this time was critical, and it was imperatively necessary to know whether the citizens of the towns would support the noble insurrectionists. Bedford opened its gates, and the Confederates took the road to London. They arrived there on the morning of the 24th of May. The people received them joyfully, and good order was maintained in the army of the Holy Church. The barons issued a proclamation, calling under their banners all the knights who had hitherto remained aloof from the contest. The king found himself unsupported, all the nobility of the kingdom having risen against him. He yielded, therefore, at least for a time, to urgent necessity. He sent the Earl of Pembroke to the barons assembled in London to assure them that he was quite ready to grant the privileges and liberties which they claimed and asking on what day and at what place they would arrange matters with him. On the 15th of June, at Runnymede, replied the barons. 
On the 15th of June, all the noblemen of England were there. It is not necessary to name them, says the Chronicle, for they consisted of all the nobility of the country. Fitzwalter was at their head. The king was accompanied by the legate, by the Grand Master of the Templars, by eight bishops brought by Langton, and by twelve barons, of whom the Earl of Pembroke was the chief. The king's followers, with the exception of the legate and the Templar, were as devoted to the liberties of England as the Confederate noblemen. John did not put in any claim or make any objection, with an amount of alacrity which must have appeared suspicious to far-seeing observers, he signed the charter which was presented to him, and the great seal was affixed to it. The first real token of English liberty had been acquired. The first stone of the noble edifice of the Constitution was laid. The conditions were well defined, and the rights and interests of the clergy, as well as those of the feudal nobility, and of the merchants and citizens who had supported the barons in their enterprise, were carefully provided for. Effectual guarantees were secured. The necessity for causing persons who were arrested or punished to be tried first of all in a court of justice, the establishment of regular assizes, the maintenance of the integrity of justice, all formed part of the fundamental rights claimed by the barons, who also required the disbanding of the mercenary troops and the formation of a committee of 25 members entrusted with the task of seeing to the fulfilment of all the clauses of the compacts, the non-fulfilment of which gave the barons the right of waging war with the king until their grievances should be completely redressed. During two months, the barons were to retain possession of the city of London. All these precautions were powerless, however, against treachery. Scarcely had the triumphant confederates left Runnymede when King John flew into a terrible passion, rolling on the ground and cursing the traitors who had dared to reduce him to slavery. The mercenary troops, whom he was obliged, according to Magna Carta, to disband, encouraged him in his anger and his plans for revenge. John called fresh reinforcements to his aid. After the treaties had been violated, war broke out. The barons prepared for it. A tournament, which had been announced, was decided to be held nearer to London, and several gatherings had already taken place when the thunderbolt which John had invoked fell upon the heads of the English nobility. The Pope declared Magna Carta to be void, holding that it was illegitimate, having been obtained by force, and he commanded Langton to dissolve any confederation under pain of being excommunicated. The Archbishop set out for Rome in order to obtain a revocation of this sentence, and the war commenced in England with the siege of Rochester. The place was defended by Dalbini, a member of the Council of the Twenty-Five. After a resistance, which lasted during two months, the garrison, having come to the end of their resources, at length opened the gates. John desired to hang the brave defenders of the town. The chief of his free bands, Sauvery of Morléans, surnamed the Bloody, opposed his determination. The war is only beginning, sire, said he. 
If you commence by hanging your barons, your barons will end by hanging us. The knights' lives were spared, and the men-at-arms only were executed. Langton had failed in his mission at Rome, and had been deposed from his see. The barons were excommunicated, and the city of London placed under an interdict, but the Confederates took no notice of the two sentences. The Pope had been misguided, they said, and had meddled in the temporal affairs of England, which do not concern him, as the spiritual domain alone belongs to St. Peter and his successors. John, however, had become possessed of two large armies of mercenary troops, of Brabantines and of freelances, who willingly executed the sanguinary orders of their chief. One corps was sent to pursue their work of ravaging the counties of the east and the centre. The other marched towards the north under the command of the king. Repulsed into Scotland, the young King Alexander, who had crossed the frontier to lend his aid to the barons, and burnt down and desolated the buildings in York, Northumberland and Cumberland. Everywhere the barons, in retiring, would lay waste their houses and fields. Everywhere the king burnt down whatever he found standing, but he was still advancing, while the confederates were retreating. They at length found themselves shut up in the city of London. All their castles had fallen into the hands of the tyrant, who had made a present of them to his followers, to Satan's guards, as the people called them. The families of the Confederates were at the mercy of King John. The barons resolved upon their course of action, a bitter one, that of seeking aid abroad, and accordingly sent a deputation to Philip Augustus, proposing to give the crown of England to his son Prince Louis if he would come to their help with an army. His arrival, it was thought, would immediately thin the ranks of King John's supporters, for they were mostly Frenchmen, and would be unwilling to fight against their own countrymen. Philip Augustus only wanted a pretext to meddle in the affairs of England. He agreed to the proposals of the barons, not, however, without requiring hostages as a guarantee of good faith. And in spite of threats from the Pope, who forbade either the father or the son to invade a fief of the Holy Church, Prince Louis set sail in the month of July with a large army, raised chiefly through the personal efforts of his wife, Blanche of Castile, a niece of King John, in whose name Louis put forth his claim to the crown of England. John's fears did not wait for the landing of the French troops. He had left Dover and had repaired to Bristol, where the legate awaited him. Prince Louis landed at Sandwich, and, almost without striking a blow, he marched to London, which city he entered on the 2nd of June, 1216. The entire population came to meet him, and, after having offered up a prayer to St. Paul, he received homage from the barons and citizens, promising to govern them according to their laws, to protect their rights, and to restore their property to them. The satisfaction was universal. The counties surrounding London submitted willingly to Prince Louis, the oppressed inhabitants of the north revolted. A large number of John's mercenary troops deserted him to return to their homes or to rally round the standard of France. The nobility who had become reconciled to the king, 
in the presence of the reverses sustained by the national cause, abandoned him to join their old friends, and, lastly, Pope Innocent III was just dead, 16th of July, and hence the powerful support of Rome was taken from him. John had only the fortresses defended by his partisans remaining to him. Meanwhile, Prince Louis was stopped at Dover Castle and the English barons at Windsor Castle. In vain did they attack the massive walls with a machine which came from France and which was called the Malvoisine. Hubert de Burg held his ground firmly at Dover and the siege of Windsor had been raised. The Confederates had hoped to surprise the King at Cambridge, but John had eluded them and had proceeded to Lincoln, of which city he took possession. The prospects of the Confederation were not flourishing. The reinforcements, which had been sent from France, were checked by the English sailors, who remained faithful to King John. Prince Louis displayed little activity and treated his English allies in a haughty manner. He had already presented several estates to the noblemen who had accompanied him from France. One of them, the Viscount of Melun, was dead, and he had, it was said, confessed when dying, that the intention of the French people, when their prince should be on the throne, was to treat the English like men who had shown themselves untrustworthy by reason of their treachery to their sovereign. Distrust and discord had entered into the Allied camps. Several barons opened negotiations with King John. The latter's position was ameliorating. He had just left Wisbeach and desired to proceed to Cross Keys, on the south of the Wash, when, on arriving at the ford, he beheld the rising tide suddenly engulf the long line of wagons which were carrying his luggage, his treasures and his provisions. The troops had already crossed the river and were in safety, but the king became furious at witnessing such an irreparable loss. He arrived, exhausted with rage, at the convent of the Cistercian monks at Swineshead. No event, however dreadful, troubled King John while at table. He ate some peaches and drank some new ale, so immoderately, in fact, that he fell ill on the morrow, and thinking that he was poisoned by the monks, he caused himself to be taken to Newark. Death, the only enemy that John could not escape from, awaited him there. He sent for a priest, nominated his son Henry as his successor, and dictated a letter to the new Pope, Honorius, to recommend his children to the care of the Holy Church. The remembrance of his crimes did not seem to trouble him on his deathbed. Perhaps he held himself absolved from all his sins by his allegiance to the Holy See. I commit my soul to God and my body to St. Wollstone, he said. He then expired on the 18th of October, 1216. He was buried at Worcester in the church of St. Wollstone. Death had at length delivered England of the cowardly and faithless tyrant whom she had for a long while submitted to, then vanquished, and against whom the country was still struggling in defence of Magna Carta, which, after the lapse of more than six centuries, remains the basis of English liberties. End of chapter 8, part 3